Well, it is a delight to be with you again. I'm a, I'm a visitor, a guest, and an occasional someone who shows up at Christ the King, and it's good to see some familiar faces as well as new ones uh, here today. And uh, I'm uh, going to open up to you and have us think about together a very small passage, just four verses, that very familiar and simple story of Martha and Mary. And it has a very powerful message for us that's uh, incredibly important. And so may the Lord open our ears to hear his word as we gather under that authority today. A short and familiar story, uh, indeed, and I want to just take a minute to put this little tiny story into its overall context and what uh, Luke is doing. This is chapter 10 of Luke, and uh, from really the end of chapter 9, it's a big turning point, and Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, ultimately for his destiny and the cross. So the beginning of chapter 10 marks a real beginning of the sort of second half of this book, and it's when Jesus sends out the first missionaries into the mission field. He has been preparing his followers to get ready to go and do the things that he has been doing and to be sent out into the world. And at the beginning of chapter 10, that's the story. Jesus is sending them out. He tells them how to go, and he sends them out, and they come back, and they have a conversation. It's the beginning, really, of their active participation in the ministry that Jesus has been preparing them to do. Really interesting. Then, I just want you to notice a fairly remarkable sequence of things happen in our text. That sort of... uh, story goes through verse 24, if you have a Bible here, to look at Luke 10. And then you get, remarkably, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Again, a familiar story, and I think most of you would be familiar with it. I won't rehearse it for you. But it's one of these stories that turns the world upside down. It challenges every expectation of the culture. And it is a remarkably powerful story to demonstrate what it means to be one of these kingdom servant missionaries sent out into the world. What is it going to be like to be sent out into this mission that Jesus has for his followers? They've been sent out, and the first part of the chapter shows you what they're doing and what they report when they come back. And then there's a story that says, okay, let's really zero in on what this ministry out there in the wider mission of Jesus is going to look like. What exactly are you preparing us to do, Jesus? And that's where the parable of the Good Samaritan shows up. The ministry that the church is meant to do, his followers are meant to to demonstrate, is the kind of ministry the Good Samaritan shows, which is costly, sacrificial, self-giving, and generosity towards the one in need, regardless of who they are, regardless of their background. And the amazing thing is that it's the Good Samaritan that shows this, which is contrary to every Jewish expectation. The hated Samaritan is the exemplar of what it really is to love your neighbor. This is all about loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is the self-giving, sacrificial care for the other in need. It's a very powerful story. And we know, looking back on it, it's the story of being like Christ, who demonstrates what, time and time again, and supremely in his cross, sacrificial, self-giving, generous love for the other, caring for their need and putting their need before your own. That's what this is about. This is love of neighbor. If you want to know, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Look at a story like the Good Samaritan. It's 
A beautiful example. Then what's the next story? Huh, interestingly, this little story about Martha and Mary. And then notice the next story after this is the Lord's Prayer. What in the world is this sequence all about? Well, I think if, if you want to look at it this way, I'd invite you to look at it this way, that this business of being sent out by Jesus as his representatives into his mission and doing all the things that Jesus is preparing his people to do, and if that's defined by and given an example by being like a good Samaritan, and that's what this means to be sent out there. That's what it means to love your neighbor, really. The Martha and Mary story is all about what is it going to take to be the kind of person who is sent out and lives out sacrificial, self-giving love for the other. How are you going to possibly do that? How are you going to be a good Samaritan? How can God's people be out there in mission to do those kinds of things? I think the Martha and Mary story gives you the clue about how is it possible. Put it this way, from what sort of source, ultimately, will that kind of ministry flow? Where is it going to come from? Then the next story after this, the Lord's Prayer. It's along the same lines. How are you going to be able to live out this kingdom mission? How are you going to be able to be like a good Samaritan? It's just an incredibly daunting, overwhelming task if you do it in your own strength, if you do it from your own resources, if you think it's a matter of your own cleverness or your own strategy or your own willpower. Both of these stories are moving in the same direction. So if you're going to be a good Samaritan-like servant and loving your neighbor in those sort of sacrificial, self-giving, costly costly ways. The Good Samaritan pays his own money for the healing of the person in need. Sacrificial, self-giving ways. Martha and Mary's story tells you you need to be a person who first and foremost listens to Jesus. The Lord's Prayer tells you you need to be a person of prayer and you need to put the priorities of the kingdom, his name and kingdom and will, above all else as your very first priority in life and seek every form of sustenance and dependence to live out that agenda. That's what the Lord's Prayer is all about, but that's another sermon for another day. Let's think about Martha and Mary, then, in light of that. Okay? That's where this fits. Pretty remarkable stuff, friends. Really pretty remarkable stuff. So this is a very simple little scene. It's a food scene. It's one of the many meal scenes in the Gospel of Luke. Luke loves food, apparently. Uh, and there's a scholar who's, who has said that and written that um, in his view, the whole Gospel of Luke is organized around all the meals. So scholars have these lovely theories, and they like to argue for points of view, and, th and no one will ever agree totally on what's the answer to how Luke organized the whole Gospel. Well, that's the sort of thing people go to Wycliffe College and Regent College, and they <laughs> wrestle with these debates and all these good things. And, um, but the point is, there's a whole lot of meals in Luke. There's, there's, if you actually go through and read them, there's, there's like a ton. Here's one. So it's a very basic scene, and it's wonderful to have this in a place where food and hospitality and welcome is a part of the very makeup of this space and Philip's hospitality to us. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She's showing hospitality to the honored guest. Jesus, in this culture, would be the revered one. He's a rabbi sort of traveling rabbi figure, an esteemed person with high status. To welcome into your house is a great honor, and it's also a privilege and responsibility. 
and you need to show them hospitality and you need to feed them. Hospitality in every culture centers around food. Just what the food is is what changes from culture to culture, but the practice and the principle is the same everywhere. It's the same here. She's doing, Martha's doing everything that she was expected to do in her culture. Everything. Preachers like to beat up on Martha a lot, but she's doing exactly the right thing. We're going to see that she's not doing it at the right time. Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to his teaching. She's at the back, bustling around, and it's a smaller space, actually, than this space. It would be, actually. The, the three-room houses of the ancient world, you can go and see these in Israel to this day. They're about half the size of this space we're in right now. So there's bustling around at the back, getting a meal going for the honored guest, according to <coughs> cultural custom. And at the front of the house, there's Jesus, who has entered, and the sister, Mary, sitting at his feet. Very simple little scene. But two different worlds, in a sense. So sitting at his feet is what a student of a rabbi would be doing. He is the honored rabbi, and he is now teaching. She is sitting at his feet. She's doing, just a slight uh, footnote here, but it's a very important one. She is doing what men did in that culture, and Jesus is welcoming her as a woman to sit at his feet and to receive his teaching, which again is violating all of the cultural norms of the time, and it's welcoming women into his inner circle and into his presence so that he can speak with them face to face and eye to eye. Just like he does with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, remarkably breaking every cultural custom so he can have a face to face, eye to eye conversation with her. Jesus is welcoming women into the circle all the time that was never done. He's violating every cultural norm because everyone, man and woman, needs to hear his voice. So that's what's going on here. She's doing what a rabbi, a student of a rabbi, should be doing sitting at his feet and listening. Notice there's the key word, listening to his teaching. She is a listener. But Martha was distracted with much serving, it says. There's the little important key word of the whole thing, distracted. This is a, a, a text supremely about paying attention or being distracted distracted with much serving. Now, distracted, the, the, the Greek word here is very interesting, simple, powerful little word, which is uh, literally being pulled away. She's being pulled away from the thing she's supposed to be attending to. That's how this word works. She is distracted by her serving. And the serving word is just the regular, standard, New Testament word for service and ministry. It's diakonia. She's doing service back there in the kitchen trying to get ready to do the right thing for the honored guest. But Luke's point is she is pulled away from the proper focus of her attention, which should be Jesus, pulled away by her serving, pulled away by her desire to put on a nice meal for the honored guest, which was, of course, a perfectly normal thing to be doing. But it wasn't the thing she was supposed to be doing right then and there, because when the honored guest is Jesus... The thing to do is stop everything and sit at his feet and listen because of who he is and only on account of who he is. The thing to do when he shows up is not make a meal. It's to sit and listen to him. So she's distracted. She's pulled away from Jesus by all the serving. The serving's a good thing. 
And this is not a text that says somehow service is bad and you should only contemplate or something like that. It's trying to put everything into the right perspective and the right priority. And this is about the priority of listening first and foremost. Martha was distracted with much serving. She's pulled away from the right center of attention. And then listen to how it describes what happens to you if you're pulled away from the right center of attention and you want to get on with your servant. Listen to this. And she went up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve, uh, left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. So this is a picture of what happens if your priority is on the service and you're not first listening to the word of Jesus. She's anxious, she's grumpy, she's upset, she's self-pitying, and she starts actually bossing Jesus around. Right? She starts telling Jesus what to do. It is always a sign in the New Testament when you see people telling Jesus what to do that something is really seriously wrong. Something's gone off here. She's grumpy, self-pitying, left me to do this alone. I'm doing this all by myself. She should be helping me. Right? Now, none of us are ever like that, are we? Anxious, grumpy, the world on our own shoulders, bearing the big burden, doing the noble task, doing the right thing, but nobody's helping us and no one's acknowledging us. We don't ever feel like that. We're never grumpy like this, are we? You're never a grumpy servant. No. The great thing about the characters in the Bible is that they're so human. I think this is a pretty telling little episode. Do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? What about me? Don't you care about me? Hmm. Anxious, upset. Yes, of course we are like that too, aren't we? Distracted people act like that. Notice what is held up and championed as the way to live here. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. What does that mean? What that means is if you're going to be a kingdom-serving person, if you're going to be sent out doing the mission of Jesus that you're being prepared to do, if you're going to be like the Good Samaritan and give yourself in sacrificial, self-giving, loving service to the neighbor and attend to that neighbor's need, if you're going to be a love-thy-neighbor kind of person, where is that going to come from? From what source is that going to flow? Is it going to be self-sufficient, independent, carry the world on your own shoulders, activism that tries to do all the right things? Or is that actually going to proceed from a source outside of yourself? Is that going to proceed from hearing and receiving the word of God as it comes to you in Jesus? That's what this is about. Thou shalt not go out on your own strength, says Jesus. Thou shalt not be self-sufficient in trying to be my servant. That's not going to work. You'll wind up a grumpy, pitying, complaining, bossy servant. You're going to wind up like Martha. So I think you have a good Samaritan versus Martha comparison going on here in these two stories. They're right next door to each other. Do we have eyes to see it? You've got one kind of service and another kind of service. What's the difference between the two? 
The difference is simple. It's sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening, giving priority to his word and the grace of God that comes to you in that word. Grace always precedes the task of the church to live for Jesus. The grace comes first. I do believe that there are no accidents in the way that Sundays unfold amongst God's people. So the colic for the day, which I didn't know was going to be the colic for the day until the bulletin came to my hand, says, we've already prayed this. Lord, you know that without your grace, we cannot put our trust in anything that we do. It's like that's a commentary on our passage. We can't put our trust in our serving, in our bustling around, in our making a meal for Jesus. We can't put our trust in that. We can't do that out of our self-sufficiency. It's just not going to work. We'll be anxious and grumpy and self-pitying people. However, if first we recognize that our source for any kind of ministry and service is actually the grace of God that comes to us first as a gift, Jesus showing up in the home to speak his word is pure gift. It's grace of God. It precedes all of our action. And the point of this little passage is stop everything. Put down your knives and forks and pots and pans and wait for that word to come to you first. Listen first. And then you can go and pick up your pots and pans. And the way that you operate with your pots and pans is going to look totally different if you actually listen first. This isn't about just sitting at the feet of Jesus and then doing nothing. This is about receiving the word of God first as your absolute priority in life so as to make it possible to go out in God's strength and not your strength to serve like a good Samaritan. It means the priority is listening. Listening, 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 attending to the word of Jesus. And notice that the challenge is distraction. And even distraction by good and right things. So friends, let's just think about this a little bit biblically, and then I want to think about our world together for a minute. This priority of listening above all else, listening at the absolute center of life, and out of that center flows any kind of service, should not surprise us. Jesus, after all, says already this, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Living according to every word that comes from the mouth of God, the true source of real life, the word of God, living according to that, that is the source of life. That's what you live by, is what this says. Bread alone, bread is the staple of life. Bread is what is necessary. The ancient uh, New Testament world would say the one thing necessary for life is bread. What's Mary doing back in, or Martha doing back in the kitchen? She's making bread, I'm sure, for Jesus. Right? But what does Jesus say? It's not by bread alone that you eat. Bread's a good thing, of course. We have to eat, we have to survive, that's good. But the point is, it's the word of God that we really live by. That is the real sustenance and nurture of your life. Jesus has already said that. So if you think about this passage in Luke, Let me just uh, add a little layer to Luke for you. In chapter 9, you have the scene of the transfiguration before you get this business in 10 of sending people out into mission. Transfiguration is sort of a glimpse of the glory of what's going to come eventually peeking into our world now. 
the revelation of who Jesus really is and all of his dazzling glory. A little glimpse of that. But interestingly, the punchline of the story of the transfiguration on the mountain is what? This is my son, says the voice from heaven. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. What's the, the, the takeaway, we'd call it, in our world? The takeaway of this amazing, mind-boggling, end-time revelation scene of the glory of Jesus. What's the takeaway for the disciples? Listen to him. This is who he is. This is my son, the chosen one. That's his identity. And that's why you should listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. So as the disciples head into the second half of the, the book of Luke, and as they head out into their mission, they've already been told to listen to him. And what happens is then you get a little scene here in the Martha and Mary story that reinforces this message, listen. What's Mary doing? She's listening. First and foremost and above all else as her priority, she's listening. She's doing what the, trans, the voice from the Transfiguration Mountain said to do. Listen to him. The true source of service is listening. The first priority before any serving is listening. It's a very simple little text, but it is an incredibly powerful point. And it's a very challenging message for us. Let me say a few things about that. If ever there were a word for our culture and context today, it could be distracted. We live in a culture of constant distractions. It's no easy thing to pay attention to Jesus and his word. There's a woman named Linda Stone who was one of the founders of Microsoft. And into the technological revolution, she has played a uh, very big role in her job in that amazing company. And she has been reflecting on the implications of this digital world that we're creating. And she had a hand in creating. And she has some pretty profound reflections, I think, to offer on the human spirit, as she calls it. Because she says this. She says, I believe attention is the most powerful tool of the human spirit. Our capacity to pay attention. Our text today is about paying attention as opposed to being distracted. That's the whole point. So listen to what she says. Attention is the most powerful tool of the human spirit. We can enhance or augment our attention with practices like meditation or prayer or exercise, diffuse it with technologies like email and blackberries, alter it with pharmaceuticals. In the end, though, we're fully responsible for how we use this extraordinary tool, our capacity to pay attention. What are we paying attention to? So she says this, we pay continuous partial attention. She sort of coined this phrase, continuous partial attention. You ever heard that phrase? Here's what she means. It's to pay attention continuously. It's motivated by a desire to be a live node on every network. Another way of saying this is that we want to connect and be connected. We want to effectively scan for every opportunity and maximize the best ones, activities, contacts in any given moment. We want to be busy and connected and to stay alive and be recognized and to matter. We want to not miss anything. 
It's an always-on, anywhere, anytime, anyplace behavior that involves an artificial sense of constant crisis. We're always on high alert when we pay continuous partial attention. It's an artificial sense of constant crisis that drains our souls. She's not a Christian. She's not coming from the worldview of this text. She's just looking at what happens in our distracted world. And these wonderful little devices in our pockets that are popping and binging and dinging all the time with the latest email and the latest text and the latest uh, news from CNN or whatever it is, all of that popping and dinging and binging as we're constantly interrupted, constantly distracted, constantly paying partial attention to 20 things at once. Her warning is that it actually just drains our souls. What I, the reason I, I point that out is this is the kind of world that all of us are living in, and this is what we have to fight against if we are actually going to have full and undivided attention on Jesus and his word. Not partial attention, not continuous partial attention. The scene from this text wouldn't make you think that one of those little dings and rings could be from Jesus, and then all the rest of them are everything else. That's really not it. So she puts out a really big challenge to us. When we think about ourselves, do we have a state of sort of constant interruption, constant crisis, dinging and binging, which is pulling our minds and hearts in all kinds of different directions? And if that's the world we live in, how do we actually do something like Mary's doing, slow down, stop, and make the priority of our lives just listening to Jesus? Now, I want you to imagine a, a very unlikely scene. If you're looking out the window at winter, and these sort of conditions in Vancouver constitute a national emergency. Um, and uh, last night we were at someone's home, and there was a shovel outside the front door. No one in Vancouver has a shovel outside their front door. We have umbrellas outside the front door. But I want you to imagine a summertime scene. Uh, this comes from a few years ago when I lived in this part of the world and was up in late summer on uh, a little lake in Muskoka, sitting at the end of a dock with a friend of mine. And we were sitting down on this beautiful evening, because you get outside of Toronto, you get up there, as you know, or other places in the, the farther reaches of this glorious province. And it actually gets dark, and you can see the stars. You know what I'm going to say. You can see the stars. You can't see the stars in Toronto, right? Just no way. But if you go up there on a clear summer night, and it was a crystal clear night, we were sitting, my friend and I were sitting at the end of the dock and just watching the stars. We just sat down unhurried with nothing dinging or binging in our pockets at all and just sat and watched the stars. And it was amazing. My friend was kind of an amateur astronomer type guy. And so he knew quite a bit about what we were looking at. So we just sat and we must have sat there for at least an hour. And at first, you know how this goes, your eyes have to adjust. Right? And at first you look up and you say, oh, there's a lot of stars there. That's nice. And then the longer you sit there, and the more you give, in a sense, undivided attention to what you're looking at, the more you see. And then you see, oh, wow, there's actually a lot more stars, because you start to see other ones after your eyes actually adjust. And then we started to notice stuff. Just sitting there, unrushed, unhurried, undivided attention. So then you start to see, oh, there's satellites up there, too. That's interesting. 
wonder who they're spying on, actually. <laughs> but there are satellites up there. And then the plane goes over. It's like, oh, that's, that's going really fast. That's not a star. That's a plane. And uh, because my amateur astronomer friend was with me, he, he was actually able to point out a planet up there. I would never have known it was a planet, right? There are planets there. Um, and then you, you actually sit there long enough, you can see the Milky Way, right? There's this sort of really milky band. It's up there. It really is. That's pretty, that's pretty cool, actually. It's amazing what you see if you actually pay attention. Uh, and then if you sit there long enough, you'll notice shooting stars. We had some beautiful shooting stars. So, you know, if you just sit down on the dock for a minute and look up, you're not going to see a shooting star. You're going to miss it, right? Unless your timing is unbelievably miraculously and you happen to say, oh, there it is, right? You actually have to know what you're looking at, stop and pay attention and wait for it, wait for it, wait for it to see the shooting star. Can't be hurried. It's got to be the product of sitting and paying attention that you'll actually have eyes to see what really is there and what really is going on. So that's the power of paying attention. It's amazing what you can see. Undistracted, undivided, unhurried, just paying attention. In my case, looking. And in the case of this text, listening, listening, listening. The problem with all of us is that, first of all, we have about 300 things going on in our heads. And noble as it is to sit down and attempt to listen to the word of Jesus as it comes to you and as the scriptures speak to us, you've got a lot of noise in your head if you're anything like me. Lots of noise, as well as the noise from the traffic, as well as the noise from the dinging and binging and popping in your, in your pocket. Right? So we've got to fight, folks, is what I want to suggest. Fight against all of these forces of distraction in order to clear a kind of space which is undivided attention time for Jesus. For his word, if we're going to be servants of his, if we're going to be sent out into his world on his behalf, if we're going to be anything remotely like the Good Samaritan, it means first doing the one thing necessary. That's what Jesus says here. Mary has done the one thing necessary, the essential thing, the indispensable thing, the thing that you cannot do without. She's done that one thing. little story about one of my heroes. Many of you will know the name, probably, um, the uh, character of John Stott. John Stott was a legendary Anglican leader, and he was uh, from All Souls Church in London, where he was the rector, and became a worldwide Christian statesman, author, leader, amazing man. There's a book on this era of post-World War II Christianity about the evangelical movement, and it says... Uh, evangelicalism in the era of Graham and Stott. So Billy Graham is the great evangelist of the post-World War II evangelical movement worldwide, and John Stott was the great Bible teacher. Amazing man. I had the privilege to know him, as some of the others in this room did as well. He's really my hero in ministry. So some years ago, before he uh, retired officially from ministry and then passed away a few years ago, uh, some of us arranged to have him come speak here in Toronto. Maybe some of you were at this event. I don't know. And uh, it was down at St. Paul's Bloor Street. I uh, cajoled him, twisted his arm, begged him, bribed him with tea and other things uh, to speak about lessons from life. So in 50-plus years of ministry as an incredible Christian statesman and revered leader and teacher and author, 
what, uh, what would he share from his life? And he didn't want to do it. He didn't want to talk about himself. He said, oh, no, no, I just want to preach from a text. No, 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 I want you to speak about your life lessons. Because I had a sense it was his last time coming here, which it was. So I twisted his arm, and he did it, <clears throat> much under duress. I paid a price for that later, the complaining about, why did I have to do that? It was an incredible talk. So what were the life lessons of this revered leader, worldwide Christian statesman? The impact of his ministry has been astounding and will go on for generations and generations. None of us would ever hope to have the sort of impact that he has had, I don't think. So what was the secret? The first thing he said as to his life lessons was he talking about the significance of his quiet day. Here's the story that he told. He said uh, he became the minister of All Souls Langham Place Church in London, and maybe some of you have been there, right next door to the BBC, at the age of 29. And he was way too young and inexperienced to actually be the rector of that church at age 29. And not too long into his ministry at age 29 or 30, he realized that he was on his way into the pulpit to preach a sermon, and he had not prepared one. Yes. And um, he realized that something had to change. There was a problem here. Shortly thereafter, he went to a clergy conference that uh, the speaker was presenting uh, a message for them and advice for the clergy that were gathered and the message was about having a quiet day. And what that meant was a day apart, a day of, of true quiet, a day of a kind of mini personal retreat, a day set aside from the hustle and bustle of life to be quiet before God. And what John Stott um, said was he didn't take his work with him to do, his sermons to write and his books to write and his letters to write and everything else. He didn't take that with him. He left that at the office. He, he didn't do this at home or the office or the church. There was a family in the church that opened up a room in their home for him to go to as a designated space for his quiet day. And he started having a once-a-week quiet day early in his ministry. And he says that that is the most important thing that contributed to his ability to minister. He would never have done what he did without the quiet day. His service would not have become of the character and quality and depth and impact of it apart from the quiet day. Now, he didn't do it for the sake of some sort of result on the other end. He did it because he needed to ground his life in hearing and receiving the word of God, spending time with the Lord, spending time in prayer. He took only his Bible and his notebook, and he went to spend a quiet day with God. And that was the secret of his ministry. That was the most important life lesson he shared with a big audience of people at that church that day. That was the first thing he wanted people to know when I said, give us your life lessons. I've never forgotten that. So he put a big red letter Q in his diary. It was a quiet day, the Q day, the red letter Q day. And he didn't let anything barge into that. And the busier he got, the more Q days he put in his calendar. Which reminds me of Luther, by the way. Luther, in leading the Reformation, said famously... I have so much work to do that unless I pray for three hours a day, the devil wins the day. That was Luther. Luther was busy. And Luther was on the run for his life. Unless he prayed three hours a day, John Stott's the same thing. You couldn't be more busy and in demand and important and doing all kinds of things than John Stott. But what did he do? He stopped to listen and be quiet and put a big red cue 
And that's how he organized his time, was around the big red cube. A paying attention to Jesus day, a listening for his voice day, a day of single attention, undivided attention, on Jesus and his word. Not a day of continuous partial attention. Not a day of distraction, but a day of listening. Well, John Stott is my uh, hero in ministry. His character is exemplary, his impact is phenomenal, and we're all, in a sense, in his debt for the kind of example and impact that he has had. But I do remember often the real secret that he would want us to know was it doesn't come out of his own strength, it doesn't come out of his own willpower, it comes out of attentive listening first. That is the one needful thing, the one essential thing, the one indispensable thing is listening. The grace of God comes to us through the words of Jesus. The guest arrives, shares his word, offers us the very words of life. That is the gift that precedes all of our doing, all of our serving, all of our ministering, all of our action. The gift comes first. The word of Jesus to us is the gift. That's what Martha and Mary is all about. Let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll continue with our intercessions. Heavenly Father, you who spoke the world into existence and you who spoke to us supremely by sending us your Son, Jesus, to be our teacher, Lord, we pray that you would open our ears to hear your voice, help us to set aside the distractions of this world, and to receive your words of truth into our hearts so that we might become your faithful and obedient servants in your kingdom. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.